Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And please stand with me to read God's Word. So far we have looked at two passages in Matthew chapter 1. One that's usually ignored and the other that's usually reserved for Christmas. Now Jesus' genealogy, his family tree is often ignored. But it shows his unique qualifications as the promised Messiah and Savior. The King of Grace. And it shows how God uses all kinds of people for his purposes. And it's, it's hope for all who think that somehow their background uh, makes them unfit to serve God. Now the story of the birth of Christ is usually told at Christmas. And it shows the miraculous nature of Christ's birth and conception. It was scandalous. It was countercultural. It was uh, miraculous and God-honoring as it fulfilled the plan of God to bring a Savior into the world. And so today we turn our attention to another staple of the Christmas season, the visit of the wise men. We're going to read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God, In a dream, not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that as we we look at it today, that you would uh, open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. Lord, teach us what you want us to have today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're turning our attention to another staple of the Christmas season, the visit of the wise men. Uh, facts of which are often misunderstood. Several Christian Christmas traditions about the wise men are not biblically accurate. And I'm hoping today that we can get beyond tradition to what God intended in giving us the story of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is a study in contrast. You've got the wise and the foolish. Uh, you've got good intentions and evil motives. You've got truth and lies. And what we see in this passage is God's perfect timing in leading people to Jesus. Now the first group of people we meet 
are the wise men. And verse 1 says to us, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Uh, it's like biblical GPS. It gives us his exact location and coordinates. It was in Bethlehem of Judea, not Bethlehem of Galilee. It was in the days of Herod the king. So very specific of what time frame. And Bethlehem was a small town about six miles south of Jerusalem. It's history long and varied. It was formerly known as Ephra or Ephratah. Jacob buried Rachel there. It's where Ruth lived after she married Boaz. Most significantly, it was the city of David. It was, from the wa- it was water from the well of Bethlehem that David was thirsting for when he was a fugitive out in the wilderness. And it was most significantly Bethlehem, David's city, that the Jews expected the Messiah, David's greater son, to be born. They expected God's promised one to come into the world in Bethlehem. Now verse 1 tells us that it was after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, that Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Not Bethlehem, Jerusalem. Now, who were the Magi? We don't know a lot about them, except from what we learn here in Matthew chapter 2. We don't know their number, how many there were. We don't know their names or the mode of their transportation, though most Christmas cards show them on camels. Um, Tradition says that they were kings, and that there were three, and that their names were Caspar and Belshazzar and Melchior. Um, But they were not kings as commonly thought. They were more like priests or advisors. Uh, Many believe that the Magi had connections to to Daniel. Uh, Magi first appeared uh, as early as the 7th century in uh, eastern Mesopotamia. And they were a cast of wise men that was specialized in astronomy, uh, in the natural sciences, They were very skilled in science and in mathematics and agriculture and history. Now, from Daniel, we know that they were amongst the highest ranking officials in Babylon. Uh, The exact number of magi is not given. There weren't necessarily three. There could have been 20, for all we know. Uh, The assumption of three is connected to the idea, the fact that there were Three kinds of gifts, therefore there must have been three that were giving the gifts. Uh, What's significant here, though, is that they're not Jews. They're Gentiles. They're they're coming to worship the promised Messiah, but they're not Jews. They're non-Jews. They're they're Gentiles. Now, Now, Luke, if you think about Luke's gospel and his account of the birth of Christ, he shows the humility of the birth of Christ by showing... Uh, it being announced to humble shepherds out in their fields. But Matthew shows the universal nature of the work of Christ, of the salvation work of Christ, by including people outside of Israel. So you've got Gentiles coming to see Jesus. And they came to Jerusalem because that's where they figured a king would be. Makes, Makes sense. It's interesting to note, God did not announce the birth of Jesus to the religious or the political establishment of that day. He had no need of those systems to accomplish his salvation program or to fulfill his promises. He chose a way of his own choosing. 
He chose a way uh, by himself. Now, what you see in verse 2 are the only recorded words of the Magi. The only thing that's recorded in Scripture of them saying, verse 2 says this, they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, verse 1 says they were saying this, which signifies to us that it was a repeated action, that they were going around town and they were asking anyone they, they met, hey, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he? They're wondering. They're asking. Now, they explained. They said, we saw his star in the east and we have come to worship him. We saw this star and, and we're here to worship. Where is he? Now, the star's an interesting phenomena. You know, around here, you can sometimes see stars in the sky even. Um, but some think that the star is the one prophesied by uh, a Gentile, Balaam, in Num- Numbers 24, verse 17. They may have, these, these wise men may have been acquainted with Scripture via the deportation of God's people to Babylon. Uh, many have attempted to figure out the identity of the star. But we are quite literally left in the dark regarding its identity, biblically speaking. So all explanations about the star are merely guesses. We don't really know for sure. What we do know is this, that God arranged for a part of his creation, a star, or it could have been the Shekinah glory of God. We don't know. But God arranged for um, a part of what he has created to lead these Gentiles to Christ, to where he was. And it's important to note how eager they were to see him, how they went out of their way to see, to see Jesus. They were, these men were professionals. Now, I know that Magi came to be known at, on a little lower level, especially in the book of Acts. You had Elymas, the magician. Uh, it kind of spiraled down. But in their day, they were respected. They were uh, Kingly, maybe that's why people thought they were kings, but they were professionals, they were honorable men, and they were known as, as men who, who had knowledge, but also who had wisdom, and also who, who acted upright in an upright manner. This was the type of men they were. They were seekers of truth, led to truth incarnate by God himself. Most likely they were influenced by the prophets, and they probably Daniel. And they had come to worship Jesus. It reminds us that those who are wise worship Jesus as king, as sovereign. Uh, The primary theme of of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is king. Uh, he, He shows the royalty of Jesus, that he is sovereign, that he is worthy of our obedience, of our of our loyalty, Uh, he's worthy of our acknowledgement. That those who are wise acknowledge and welcome. God's right to rule in their lives. So unlike those who'd rather take their chances and figure life out on their own. So unlike the foolish King Herod that we see here in verse 3. In verse 3 it says that when, when Herod the king heard this, when he heard of the Magi going around asking, where is he who'd been born of, of King of the Jews? We wanna, we're here to worship him. When he heard this, he was troubled And it tells us that all Jerusalem was troubled too. Now, whenever Herod got troubled about something, bloodshed was sure to follow. So we know why Jerusalem was troubled as well. Uh, Herod was called Herod the Great. 
He was known as Herod the Great. He was not born a king. Now, he was hearing these words, where is he who was born king of the Jews? He wasn't born a king. He was appointed king. He wasn't a Jew, but he made himself a friend of Rome, uh, useful to them uh, during the civil wars and the wars of Palestine. They began to trust him. They appointed him governor in, in 47 B.C., and then in 40 B.C., they, they made him king. They named him king. Herod ruled from uh, approximately 40 B.C. To, to 4 A.D., and he was great. He, they called him Herod the Great. But he was great in accomplishment, but just not where it counted. He wasn't great in character. But he was great in what he did. He, he did a lot of things. He was able to keep the peace. He was the first king, the only ruler of Palestine to ever succeed in keeping order. Uh, he was also a great builder. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He, he built the fortress Masada, of which you're probably familiar with the name. Um, he could be generous at times. Uh, during especially difficult times, he canceled the people's taxes. Isn't that a great idea? He canceled their taxes. Uh, during the famine of, of 25 B.C., he melted down his own gold to buy grain for the starving people so he could be generous. And he did a lot as king, but he had, he had one serious character flaw. He was insanely jealous. He was insanely suspicious of other people. He always thought that someone was trying to take his kingdom from him. And if he, if he thought you were trying to take his kingdom, well, he was the king, so he would just have you killed. And so whenever he got upset about things like that, bloodshed was sure to follow. So the people of Jerusalem were very upset as well. Uh, he always thought someone was, was, was trying to take his throne. If you were a rival to his power, you would be killed. In fact, he assassinated his own wife. He murdered his own wife, Miriamne, and her mother. He killed his mother-in-law. Uh, her name was Alexandra. Uh, he assassinated his, his oldest son, Antipater, and two other sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. The Roman governor, uh, Augustus, said this of, of Herod, it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. If you're familiar with the Greek, there's a little play on words there between pig and son. But it was better to be Herod's pig than his son. Not a good guy. Um, now, for whatever good he did, the bad outweighed it all. And uh, he was known later in his life as a murderous old man. Now, he knew that when he died, no one was going to mourn for him. So he hatched a plan to to imprison one member of every family in his kingdom, and on the day of his death, they would all be murdered so that there would be tears shed on the day he died. That's how bad he was. This is the man to whose ears came the news that one had been born king of the Jews. Born king of the Jews. It had been a long time since anyone had been born a king of Jews. Um, it was commonly believed as well that when the Messiah was born, the royal power that the Maccabees had been given in place of Jewish kings would cease. So Herod had motive. Herod have, had cause to want to eliminate this threat to his throne. He was power. He was power hungry. He was crazed. So he was troubled, and so were the people. That usually meant bloodshed. 
So here's what he did. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. And he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, Herod didn't care about Jewish traditions. He didn't care about prophecies about the Messiah that was to come up until that point. He wasn't even aware. That's why he had to ask, hey, where was this, uh, this Messiah going to be born? He didn't even know. He didn't even care. Um, he wasn't a Jew. Most likely he was part Arabian and part Edomian. He was from Edom. You know, there was the bad blood between uh, the Jews and Edom. But he only pretended to be interested due to his jealousy and his hunger for power and to keep his own kingdom uh, in order. So here's the answer he gets. He asks them, where's the Messiah to be born? Verse 5, they, the scribes and the chief priests, they say, in Bethlehem. Of course, Micah 5.2, in Bethlehem of Judea. They say, Bethlehem, land of Judah, you are by no means least among the people. Out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Uh, Bethlehem seemed really insignificant, uh, but it was very important in God's plan. God often uses insignificant things, insignificant-looking people, and insignificant things to bring about very, very significant things in His purposes and for His plans. But religious people knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew the Scriptures. They knew But here's the interesting thing. There is no indication whatsoever that they were interested enough to take the short six-mile jaunt down to Bethlehem to see if if this was even true. Weren't they even a little bit curious? It's amazing how people who are blinded by sin can be so oblivious uh, to God's hand at work. Not, a, not aware that it's God who is orchestrating life and, and, and even current events. It's true too about Christians. We as Christians, those who, who are trusting Jesus to save them apart from anything they can do on their own, we can be oblivious to the signs of the times. We can get too wrapped up in, in, the, in the trying to make it through life on a daily basis or too wrapped up in the politics or economics of, of, of daily life to see that God is at work and to see that there is some eternal significance in the events that are happening right before our very eyes. In fact, go to Matthew chapter 24 with me. Matthew chapter 24, he, he said some things about the temple where he says, you see this temple? There will be one stone that is here that you see that will be left that won't get torn down. And he was sitting at, right at the Mount of Olives. And his disciples come and they ask him a question. And they ask him, please tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? How will we know when you're coming back? And, and the end of the age. And in verse 4, here's what Jesus is saying. He says, make sure no one misleads you, first of all. There are going to be a lot that come in my name and they say, I'm the Christ. He says, don't believe it. Just don't believe that. There are going to be wars. There will be rumors of wars. Don't be frightened. But there are going to be nations that rise up against nations. Kingdoms that rise up against kingdoms. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. But he says, that's just the beginning. That's not the, that's not the end yet. Verse 9, he says, and, and they will deliver you over to tribulation. And they will kill you. And you will be 
hated by all nations because of my name. You get that? Hated by all because of the name of Jesus. And then he says, at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because of lawlessness being increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. He says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. See, we've got to recognize that God is at work right now in current events. Right now. And what happens next? In verse 7, Herod is hatching his plan, and so he secretly calls the Magi together, and he determines from them the exact time the star appeared to them, back in the country that they came from. Now, if you wonder about uh, after how long it was after Jesus was born that the Magi appeared, this gives us a clue. Uh, The fact that Herod later killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem, ages two and under, uh, give us a clue that when they told him the time, he was trying to figure out how old the, the child was at this point. And I'm sure he threw in a little for, for, for good measure, but he was more than a couple days old. And what happened was he sent them to Bethlehem. Interesting, now he's taking control. He's, he's, he's sending them now to Bethlehem. And he says to them, you go and search for this child. Do it very carefully. And when you found him, let me know. Because I would really like to go and worship him too. Only problem was worship to him meant murder. Because <laughs> uh, he was lying. He didn't want to worship Jesus. He didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. And, and he cared more about himself and his agenda than what God cared about. You know, people who don't care about what God cares about are on a crash course of their own making. Their self-interest is going to ruin them and they have no one, blame, no one to blame but themselves. Now, in direct contrast to the wise who worship Jesus, who acknowledge his kingship, those who are foolish, like Herod, worship themselves. In fact, go to Psalm 10 with me. Psalm 10. I want to show you a couple places in the Psalms that, it, that, that really describes people like Herod, people that, that are not wise, but foolish. And in Psalm 10... Starting at verse 3, it says, The wicked boasts of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. So if you see someone who is cursing God and pushing him away, you know that they are wicked. It says in verse 4, The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. And all his thoughts are, there is no God. See, the foolish acknowledge their own sovereignty but not God's go over to Psalm 14 and verse 1 it starts like this the fool has said in his heart there is no God they're corrupt they've committed abominable deeds there is no one who does good now you flip over to to Psalm 53 you see the same very same words repeated The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. Same thing. See, they acknowledge themselves as sovereign. They admit no need for Jesus. They are on their, 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 in a sense, their, their own God to themselves. Or they are acknowledging a false God. 
Bad news for them, right? Um, the good news for those who acknowledge uh, the one true God is that God leads them. In fact, God led the wise men uh, to make this timely visit to Jesus, to see Jesus. Uh, verse 9, Matthew 2, verse 9 After hearing the king, after they got their instructions from the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, it says they they were really, really happy. They were very excited about seeing the star. You see, the star reappeared to guide them to the exact place that Jesus was. You see, the prophecy of Micah 5.2 It led them to Bethlehem. The star took them to the very house. That's how God works. He does amazing things. There's miraculous things. He took them to the very house where Jesus was. Now, this was a very unusual manifestation. Somehow, whether it was the Shekinah glory of God, whether it was an actual star, or what have you, uh, it, it testifies again to the supernatural character, the supernatural origin of Jesus. Now, verse 11 tells us that after coming into the house, they saw Mary, uh, the child, with Mary, his mother. Now, most songs and stories uh, at Christmas time and uh, with the nativity scenes and all that, they show the wise men at the manger, right? Well, they didn't go to the manger. They went to a house, according to verse 11. Probably a year or so after Jesus was born. And uh, it's more accurate, really, to show them pictured with a, a child. You've got to take the wise men out of the picture, you know, of your nativity uh, pictures. And, and it's really more accurate to show them with a child that is a little bit, you know, older than a little uh, brand newborn baby. Now, of course, uh, some pictures, you know, they, they got them outside the house here on this picture. They were in the house. Maybe after they went outside for, a, for a, a, a painting op, you know. Maybe a little bit of a, let's get a picture of this before we, you know, before we go. Um, but what they did, when they see the Jesus with his mother Mary, they, it says that they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. They, they worshipped him. But that word worship means to bow the knee. It, it means to fall to the ground. It literally means to kiss the feet. It's an extreme um, showing of honor and uh, uh, extreme uh, uh, acknowledgement of someone's worthiness. They were doing this to the child Jesus. And, and they opened up their treasures and they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We, we memorized those since we were kids, right? Um, the wise men gave Jesus three gifts. And there were typical tokens of that era. They represented importance. They represented great value. And they may or may not have had any special significance beyond that. But many see these three gifts as symbolizing three aspects of of who Jesus is. You've got gold, the the universal symbol of material and and, uh, value and wealth. Uh, Maybe signifying Jesus' royalty, that he is king, his kingliness. You have got the frankincense uh, maybe for Christ's deity because it was an expensive, uh, beautiful-smelling incense. It was a white, resinous gum that was used in the Old Testament offerings 
and it was also used medicinally. Uh, but it was, it was a symbol in those days of purity and perfection. So it, this might be, be pointing to Christ's deity. And then you have myrrh. Myrrh for Christ's suffering and death because this was a, another perfume made from resinous gum used for burying people, used for Im, when you would embalm a person after death. Now go with me please to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Now, this quite possibly could be pointing to the reason Christ came to earth, to die for the sins of the world, the myrrh. The idea in, in, in Psalm 22, in verse 16, the psalmist says, For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me, they pierced my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. We see uh, allusions to Jesus and the things that happened to Jesus at, uh, before his crucifixion, right? Now, if you go to Isaiah 53, a well-known passage on the suffering servant, and uh, again, a lot of things uh, about Jesus... If you go to Isaiah 53, in verse 3, it starts out like this. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, when Jesus died, when Jesus suffered for us, he took the full weight of our sins but there's a little bit more. Look with me at, at, at Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 in the account of the crucifixion. He took the full weight of our sins, but he also took the full pain, humanly speaking, of the punishment that was given. Look at verse 22. Mark 15 and verse 22. They bring him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they tried, it says verse 23, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. All right? Now, myrrh was used as an anesthetic to dull pain. It says that they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He refused it. Now, you go over to to John 19, John chapter 19. The same same setting when, when Jesus is is dying for the sins of the world. And he's at the cross. In John 19 and verse 28, it says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. And verse 29, A jar full of sour wine was standing there, So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And 
Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He, he died. Uh, he had paid for the sins of the world. But what we see is that Jesus, when he took upon himself all of our sin, he also took upon himself all the pain, all the real human pain, and wouldn't take anything to dull it, like myrrh. In this passage also, and especially right here, there's another clue as to how long after Christ's birth the Magi came. It was probably after Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem to perform what the law required. Now you can find this in Luke chapter 2. If if you go to Luke 2, you'll see what they did. Now when he was, in verse 22, Luke 2, verse 22 When the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem, six miles away, to present him to the Lord. I always think that's that's wild. Jesus was presented to himself. It's wild. Presented to the Lord. Um, As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And then it says in verse 24, to offer a sacrifice according to what was spoken in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves and, or, excuse me, two young pigeons. Now, that's not the only thing that was prescribed. They were supposed to give a one-year lamb, okay? One-year-old lamb. But this was the offering for a poor family. It says, there's in, in, uh, you could look it up in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. If you can't afford the lamb, you could give a pair of turtle doves or a couple pigeons. Um, See, if the Magi had arrived earlier than that, they would have had gold to buy the one-year-old lamb um, for the burnt offering. So another, another hint of why they came after, after this and when Jesus was a, a bit older. Um, but whatever the case, God honored the Magi's desire to see Jesus, to see the Messiah. Their journey was successful. They worshiped at the feet of God in the flesh. Now, in verse 12, we read that they were warned by God in a dream. And, and this is not odd in Scripture. This happens a lot of the time. When God uh, speaks or, or in, through a dream or through miraculous occurrences to people that are not yet in covenant relationship with him, to non-Jews, it happens. And God here warns them in a dream. He had led them by a star and then by prophecy and then by the star again. And now in a dream, he tells them, don't go back to Herod. He's a liar, okay? Don't go there. Um, and so they went a, a different way. They took a longer way and, and went home to their country. And uh, what you see here is that God was acting in grace to protect their lives and Christ's life. Uh, but God is always at work, always at work accomplishing his good purposes. You know, and, and important as it is to get to the biblical heart of the matter, of, this, of the wise men, uh, to be biblically accurate in our, in our portrayal of them. The greater message of this passage lies in what it says about how the world received Jesus, how people responded to Jesus early on in his life here on earth. How in the immediate context God uh, led Gentiles and to Jesus and, and how in the larger context, in the wider context, God works to save fallen humanity. See, you can see three responses to Jesus in this passage. 
uh, it responses that are very common today. First of all, you've got the foolish king, Herod. He was hostile to Jesus. Uh, indignant that anyone would, would challenge his rule. His life and his power were dearer to him than, than knowing God. Many live that way today, where they're blinded by selfishness. They they're reject Jesus' kingship in favor of their own rule in their own lives. Secondly, the chief priests and the scribes, religious people, were hardened to Jesus. Indifferent about the Messiah coming into the world. Indifferent about what the scriptures said about the Messiah coming into the world. Instead of being able to discern the times, although they knew the scriptures, they were blind to Jesus. And many people live like that today. You know, um, ignorant, unaware, blinded, um, indifferent to their need of Jesus, oblivious to the danger that their lives are in without him. And then you have got the wise men. The wise men, Gentiles, who honored Jesus, who were interested in who he was and why he came to earth, they went out of their way, went on a long journey, out of their way to come and to see the Messiah, and, and, and to pay homage to him, and they worshiped him. But it happened in God's perfect timing, and it was due to his working. It was due to what he was doing. Now, have you come to faith in Christ? Have you come to faith in Christ Jesus and acknowledged that he is Lord of all, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all? You might have done that earlier in your life, maybe later in your life, uh, if so, if that's happened in your life, it was because of God's perfect timing in your life that God led you to believe in him in his perfect timing. You know, I didn't come to know Jesus till I was almost 20 years old and sometimes I, I look back and I think, look at all that wasted time. But it was God's perfect time in my life. Now, all who come to Jesus do so because God leads them to him. Uh, God supernaturally led the wise men, again, by a star, by, uh, by, uh, by scripture, even through dreams. Um, but humanly, you could say this, well, they chose to go to Jerusalem, then they chose to go to Bethlehem to see him, and, and that is true, humanly speaking, but God gave them desire to see Jesus. God gave them the, the want to see Jesus. And we may, you know, we can do this. We may humanly say, well, I chose to follow Jesus. Or I chose to believe. But you can't ignore God's part in the process. Uh, humans will explain things in human terms because we're humans. That's the way it is. But to be uh, biblically accurate, we must acknowledge that God does the leading, God does the guiding, God even does the choosing of us. Again, explain it one way, humanly speaking, but then biblically speaking, you've got to say, wow, look what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 16. I did, you did not choose me, I chose you. You look in Ephesians 1, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We didn't know that until we came to faith in Christ. You look back and you're like, God did that. I didn't do it. I couldn't save myself. 
Now, God, why is that important? Why is that important to our understanding and our response to Jesus? It's because of this. Because it, put, it, put, it puts God in the driver's seat, not us. We we're saying when we say that, I didn't save myself. I'm not in control. I've relinquished control. I'm acknowledging Jesus as Lord, therefore I'm not. Right? The scriptures tell us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can't believe that unless God has done a work in you. God is the one who leads us to faith and he saves us. See, before a person can think a right thought about God, God has got to do a work in their hearts to allow them to think that right thought. Before a person can make a move towards God, God enables them to take that step. Faith is a gift. That all who believe uh, do so by the irresistible grace of God. Matthew chapter 2 here shows us how the world received the Messiah. Some, like Herod, were hostile to him. Some were indifferent. Some believed. Um, Showed who they were trusting in, didn't it? It showed that they were either trusting in God or themselves. But it started in Bethlehem. Humanly speaking, in terms of where the birth actually happened, it started in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Literally, house of bread. So Bethlehem, in essence, became the the cradle that held the bread of life. Jesus. In fact, go go to John 6 with me. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 35. Now this is after he fed the 5,000. And they were all excited about Jesus because he gave them food. And Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. He's the bread of life. He's the bread that came down out of heaven. You see, Jesus is the bread from heaven that alone can satisfy your soul. You can try as many ways as you can to make yourself happy in life and be fulfilled in life and and meet your needs in life, and they will all not work. They will all not work. Some will be a mirage. They will look like they're working for a while, and they won't. See, only Jesus can meet your deepest needs. You see, before the first coming of of Christ, people were waiting in expectation. Some were ignoring the signs. Some were, uh, you know, troubled by the signs, and they even fought against the signs. Some believed, and they would say, He is coming. And they would order their lives accordingly because of that fact. Well, we wait in expectation of Jesus' second coming, and some ignore the signs. And some fight against the signs. And some believe that Jesus is worthy of our worship. That he is sovereign. That that he is worthy of our acknowledgement and our obedience and our loyalty. Because Jesus is coming back soon. That's what we believe. That when he returns, or you die, whichever comes first, one question will matter. Only one question. Did you bow at his feet 
or reject his right and his desire to rule in your life? That will be the only question that matters. And there will be no time for a do-over. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for your goodness to us and your magnificent grace. And Lord, it is our desire to acknowledge you, worthy, sovereign, great. And we pray, Lord, for grace to do that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.